Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs, and this is episode five. So, kind of a busy week. Just been going down a bunch of rabbit holes. Mine's still turning. Just cut, just ideas, and after going to O-Line Masterminds, I've been watching a ton of film, throwing it back all the way to 2011 as far as I've gone back. But, you know, I started out just watching guys that I heard, heard speak at O-Line Masterminds, specifically Teron Armstead and Mitch Schwartz. I was watching more and more of them. I just love seeing, you know, hearing how they were solving problems at O-Line Masterminds with particular pass rushers and particular moves. And I love seeing it on a film because they were actually doing it. Like, it was no coaching talk. And, and not that I have a problem with coaching talk. It was just seeing in, in the real world, like chalkboard versus gridiron, I was seeing them get it done just like how they had said they planned and um, multiple repetitions of it. It was just awesome. So I'm continuing to go down this rabbit hole of style and even trying to understand better ways to uh, help athletes develop their style, help athletes problem solve, help athletes be competent enough on the field to adapt, help athletes just, just overall be more confident. Because we, we, we know that um, we have to look at things through the lens of totality. That's something Coach C, my one of my mixed martial art coaches, always talks about is totality. And sometimes weights don't get it done for people because you can get someone really strong and we know the weights don't hit back. And you could get someone in really good shape, but you know you still got to get hit in the face. You got to get hit in the mouth. So trying to get guys, you know, bring all that together. You got guys in good shape. You hit your sprints. You did your agility. You did your weights. You got your max effort. You got your dynamic effort. You got your repetition method. You bring all these things together. You got your Olympic lifts. Whatever it is that you do, your friends, Bosch, I don't care. But then, you know, you put together this perfect athlete, but is he able to get on the field and adapt? Is he able to get on the field and make decisions? Is he able to, is his perception and reality on the same page, you know, or is he overwhelmed with the playbook and he's not able to um, adapt to the, the, the environment moving around him? There's all these, you know, multifactorial things that, that account for making a good offensive lineman or any athlete or even someone in life or a student. It doesn't matter. Everything's multifactorial. So I'm going down all these rabbit holes and I'm, I'm just fortunate to have people around me that can challenge me. So... There's, there's been a drill I've been working with um, skill-wise and in pads because I, I like to put pads on. I'm not a big guy. I'm not big on shields, especially with the older vets. I think shields or bags or whatever, I think they're good for um, maybe preparing your body, getting tissue adaptation to the load, uh, energy system, you know, just general training. But when it comes down to getting athletes adapting, making decisions, uh, really honing in on their technique, you got to put the pads on. And if you're worried about injuries and stuff, you know, you scale back the tempo, you scale back the intensity, put your freaking, put some tape on, you know. You see fighters do it, they wrap their hands, and they go spar, right? And uh, when they get in a real fight, you know, they get taped up really well. But, you know, just on a Monday, they're going to get a workout and they're sparring or hitting the bag or anything. They'll wrap their own hands, right? So, I mean, put some tape on. Um, you know, now they have, like, all those thumb braces and Don Joy wrist braces. I think it's worth investing in. So I, I like getting guys in pads. You know, I don't I don't want to spend too much time on nonspecific stuff because I got to do that. You got to do that anyways because you got to get in the weight room. You know, you got to get on the, you know, do, 
do the track type stuff, the acceleration, deceleration, and all these type of things. So when you get to the skill, I like to put the pads on. And I'm not saying you got to bang your heads and, and uh, you know, run 50 deuce blocks. You know your body can't hold that all year. But, you know, that's what I believe. This is this is me. This is what I believe. Um, I'd say Olin Cruz opened my mind to that. And, you know, it stuck with me. Anyways, I was doing a drill. And my reason behind it was to get athletes to um, try different things. So we were going to a drill. I'll try to break this down as simple as possible. Let's say me and my partner were doing a drill. We're going against each other. Partner chooses a pass rush he's going to do against me, and he's going to give it to me at 50%. I don't know what he's giving me, and I am going to have one thing I'm working on in my mind. I am going to use the outside hand. I'm going to use a double hand. I'm going to use inside hand. Uh, I'm going to catch. You know, I'm going to keep my hands to myself. Just one thing I'm going to work on. So he's going to give me a move. And at 50%, and if that move works, say he's doing a long arm, I do inside hand, it works. Perfect. And then in the next play, he's going to do the same move and give it to me at 75% effort. Whatever, you know. Uh, just We're not trying to kill each other, right? 50 to 75%, it's hard to really measure a person's intensity. So say the inside hand works, gives it to me at 75%, I do it again. So the intent is this. I want athletes to try different things and see what things they work at. Well, I was talking to Tom Blazer from 5 is 1 O-Line. Like I've mentioned it before, you've probably blocked him or know someone that has or seen just pure chaos from that man as a social media assassin on Twitter. Um, he kind of challenged it, and I'm glad he did. And he was just saying he'd like to see more chaos. And then, you know, he agreed with my intention, but still, you know, he made the point of um, – Reps without repetition. So meaning, when if when you see guys just going against a bag, that's that's reps, and that's just re- repeating reps, right? You know what you're getting. And what we see in skill is what we see on the field, what we see in sports, what we see in combat is just chaos. So you you need more reps without repetition, and um, challenging, you, you know. So like he was saying, well, why wouldn't he just do a second move, or why do you have to know the move? And at the end of the day, he was right. And basically, like, the difficult part is how, how close does drills need to get to the game. And that's what we're trying to figure out. We hopped on a Zoom call because we were getting nowhere with his partner, Kyle Murphy, uh, with Mike Dillon, another smart dude. And then uh, Ross Cooper, Gorilla Missiles on Twitter, he's a DB coach. But, man... Uh, I don't know if he's had influence on Mike and Murph and Tom, but, you know, they kind of were all on the same page. And they were just really um, challenging me with, I mean, they just blew my mind, especially Ross coming from the DBs because I know it's a different game. It's a different position. You know, maybe they got better bodies on the defensive backs than the offensive line. That's debatable. I mean, in the winter, do abs matter if it's 40, negative 40? care about abs I don't know it's debatable if their bodies are better but when you're talking skill when you're talking about problem solving when you're talking about decision making when you're talking about perception when you're talking about adapting you're talking the same thing and then I mean if you're really being honest there's a lot of crossover carryover between the defensive back position and the um, offensive line position especially especially when you view it through the lens of just concepts right take away the six-pack 
and take away that they probably have jewelry on during the game. Um, I, I, I take that back. I've seen some old linemen do that. I don't know how long. Yeah, I've seen old linemen do that. Well, anyways, take that part away. If you're looking at it from concepts, there's a lot of carryover. Well, anyways, um, they blew my mind. And I'm not going to get too detailed into that because we need to do it again because I could review my notes all day. He has a – Ross has a very Bruce Lee-esque uh, approach to skill acquisition, skill adaptation, whatever you want to say. I, I, I'm really digging that skill adaptation uh, concept and just technique and problem solving and, you know, just in general, he, had, you know, he kind of has this Bruce Lee-type philosophy, and it's awesome. That's why I got the Bruce Lee book here. I've been inspired by these guys to whip it back out. But, uh, yeah, ultimately what we're trying to do, I think, what we're trying to do with the rabbit hole that Tom and I started going down is, like, if you look at martial arts, so... Even just look at what martial arts has come to today. Let's look at mixed martial arts, right? They, if you look at 20 years ago, you had guys that were specialists. Good wrestlers, good at kickboxing, taekwondo, good boxers, street brawlers, and uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You had people that specialized in one thing, right? So if you look at, remember uh, when the Gracies came in, there was no weight classes. They were wearing the gi the black belt and they just took the sport by you know no one knew what to do they didn't know how to handle this brazilian jiu-jitsu and i think they had weird spellings for it and then you know people started getting into jiu-jitsu you know adding that into their sport but you had these crazy matchups but you look at where the sport's coming now and you have to look at it you have to think about it as people are having to adapt to make decisions it's it's not this campy uh, training like the future of the sport is that you have to train MMA right if I am in wrestling class well the me shooting in wrestling class and my takedowns and sprawls in wrestling class are different than in an MMA fight right because I have a different posture I have a different stance in MMA I'm standing because I got to worry about all these variables I have to make decisions with punches and kicks and being able to block and slip and check kicks, all these things, and sprawl. So I'm sprawling from a different position because I can't be in a traditional wrestler stance because there's all these other variables, right? And the same thing like in with jiu-jitsu. I love being in a gi. Um, it's, that's different than what's happening in an MMA fight. So the point is, is that where the sport's going now is, of course, you're going to have someone that's, they're going to be, better at one thing than the other, you know, like Israel Adesanya, he's a striker. Um, Conor McGregor is a striker. Habib is a psycho uh, with the Sambi or Samba. But you got to be well-rounded in everything. You have to be able to make decisions in every aspect within, like, your current positioning, which is you have to stand up. You have to, you have to cover the striking aspect. You have to be able to defend takedowns and shoot and, and do and, – and deliver takedowns from this different position. So at the end of the day, like martial arts has a good way, whether it's mixed martial arts or even, you know, just individual Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, Muay Thai, whatever, they have good ways of helping athletes develop um, the ability to make decisions and adapt 
in the in the moment, right? And a lot of that is because the art adapts to the individual, and that's what I think Blaze and I are struggling with is that with O line, how do we do that? So we brought a DB in to help us. I'm mind blown. I hope I have like a weekly Zoom call, at least monthly Zoom call. I got my phone full of notes that I took. I'm back in the Bruce Lee book, whipped out my old friend, feeling good. Uh, I bought that book in college, and there's a lot of it's it's a lot of philosophy. It's it's based on fencing. It's based on fencing and boxing, Eastern boxing, Western style boxing, and uh, kung fu. And that's how he developed Jeet Kune Do. So he took all these art arts and was like, oh, this is how. We need all these arts to be in a street fight and stuff like that. So that's why a lot of times, even though he wasn't a mixed martial artist, like they call him the godfather of mixed martial arts. And that's debatable. I know there's other people involved. I don't have their books. I just happen to have his. But he, you know, there was a lot of philosophy in there. And, you know, a lot of his quotes you see all over Twitter. You see all over Instagram. I have posters in my garage with his quotes on them. And... Maybe I didn't look at, I didn't understand them as deep as Ross would break them down. Like, I'll give you an example. He said, um, um, very famous Bruce Lee quote is, he does, I fear not the man that knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that uh, has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Ross took it a step further. Well, it's versus, versus an opponent. He practiced 10,000 kicks versus an opponent. Not just a bag, right? Because now... If he just did 10,000 kicks versus a bag, that's just repetitions. That's reps of repetitions. But if you did it versus an opponent, that's reps without repetition. That's you having to adapt. That's you having to make decisions. That's you having to adapt to the environment around you. And that's football. And the environment of football is nuts because, you know, it's all moving parts. When you talk space and football, you know, let's say in MMA, you're talking space between you and your opponent, you and the ground, you and the cage. Stuff like that. When you talk football, you're talking you, the ground, your quarterback, your running back, your your teammates, your opponents, your opponent's teammates. It's just such a complex ecosystem, right? So it's a, it's a whole other game, and that's what we're trying to. I'm I think what we're trying to get down to is given all this noise and complexity. How do we get athletes? able to adapt how do we get athletes perception and reality to come in line and how do we get them to make better decisions well but i think we're getting there and it took a db which i never thought that would happen it took a db to help that come to fruition but overall awesome stuff i like the rabbit holes i'm going down um sometimes rabbit holes lead to nowhere and, and blaze even said that and i said i'm good I'm good with going nowhere as long as we're challenging ourselves, you know. And uh, that's where we're at. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the style stuff that style, style rabbit holes in regard to offensive line. That's enough MMA martial arts talk. So I pulled out a couple films that I finally went and got a DVD player so I could watch some Dwight Stevenson film. Um. Those that don't know Dwight Stevenson, look this guy up. I think he has six seasons in the NFL. I think well, maybe eight, and, and I and could be wrong. So maybe I should be the one looking him up. Dwight Stevenson was a center from Alabama, 
and then he went to Miami. He may have been on the may have not started his first year. I think he played behind another Hall of Fame center. But then he went on to make six Pro Bowls in a row, then he got injured, and that was it. But in his short career, he went to the NFL Hall of Fame. And, man, very unique. He played in a super wide stance. I mean, really wide, damn near straight leg. Uh, looked like a triangle. Look him up. You can find the picture of his stance. It sticks out. You know, and, and then in the 80s, they wore, like, those old-school baseball cleats is what it looked like. He was about 6'1", 6'2", 255, and just an awesome player. So when I was looking at Styles, I was like, well, I'm going to compare him to Olin Krutz because we're talking about a Hall of Fame center and who I believe, and who gives a damn what I believe, a person that should be a, a Hall of Fame center in Olin. So I'm breaking down. I'm looking at their styles. At the end of the day, both of these guys put bodies on the ground all the time. You know what I mean? Uh, just violence, right? But how they got there, it couldn't have been more different. There was their ability to adapt, their ability to make decisions, way different, right? And I don't know why I just started watching them, but it, it made me appreciate the individual style, right? So Dwight Stevenson, I'll just briefly break him down. What he did, he never attacked people's strengths. And, and, and I, even a company I work for, we would talk about pressure to pressure. That's the contact. Well, he didn't fight pressure with pressure. That was not his game. And anyone that watched his game could recognize he wasn't fighting pressure with pressure. He was taking athletes' defender strength and using it against them. And it was beautiful. And, um, you know, there, there's players that could do that. Like, Olin had aspects of that in his game. Kevin Mawai did a lot of that. I think Brian Waters did a ton of that, um, taking what players give them, what players are presenting as a strength, and using that against them. That's that kind of falls in line, like with martial arts. When you look at um, jiu-jitsu and judo, damn it, I brought up martial arts. Oh well, when you look at jiu-jitsu and judo, you know you're trying to find vulnerable positions to, you know, either tap guys, sweep them, get them on the ground, and you set that up because it's where they can't post, where they can't catch themselves. You know, if you think of Ronda Rousey with the hip toss, uh, she was a really good judo. MMA fighter, right? And that that was Dwight Stevenson's game. Not, it, it threw the lens of football, though. So he, um, if if a if a defender was bull rushing him to the right shoulder, he would drop his le- his or his right foot and kind of slam them, right? Instead of fighting pressure to pressure. So it was just a unique way of playing. And I don't think anyone in the 80s was ready for it. The game film I actually have of him is versus the 85 Bears when, when he was on the Dolphins. That's the only team the 85 Bears lost to that year. And uh, oddly enough, they, uh, Chicago Bears had a really good center at that time in that same game film, Hildenberg. I think he made six or eight Pro Bowls at center. He's not in the Hall of Fame. That's, that's something to talk about. Um, he had like a more traditional stance, held his hand in a, you know, just on his side. Uh, Dwight Stevenson had his wide stance. His hands were ready for attacking people. So if I could break down really quickly what he did, and this is one day 
I'll be able to have film on here. You know, maybe I have a producer right now. I am not ready to produce. So Dwight Stevenson played with his hands real wide, but he, he punched them. He, he really struck people. He played with his hands on the shoulder pads. And the only other person I hear, I've ever heard speak about that is Larry Warford. So he grabbed people really wide, and that made him bigger. And he played in this wide stance, and, and that made him bigger too. You know what I mean? It was able to make him cover ground. So in 85, you have to remember, he's going against a famous nose guard, one that scored a touchdown in a Super Bowl. French Perry, his finger was bigger than my wrist. If you go to the NFL Hall of Fame, his Super Bowl ring could fit on my wrist. And, you know, he was a 305 or 310 pounder. So Dwight Stevenson's given him up 50 pounds to him. He's a great player. And he ate him alive. And it wasn't because he was fighting pressure with pressure or strength to strength. He wasn't, he was uh, taking Perry's strength away from him. So he played with his hands wide. Um, if Perry was going right, he'd tip him left. If he was going left, he'd tip him right, and he always wound up on the ground. He didn't play like with a post foot up. Maybe initially on contact, he'd have a post foot, and then he'd drop it so he could take take Perry down. And the same thing when he was run blocking, and it really wasn't zone blocking. It was different. It was just man-on-man blocking. When Perry was reading the running back, he'd put his foot down, to stop, you know, uh, Dwight Stevenson can't fe- can't see the running back, doesn't have eyes in the back of his head, but he was feeling Perry. And as soon as Perry would put his foot down, um, this is why I said it was much like judo, Dwight Stevenson would tip him over that foot. So he would, he, where he couldn't brace out. So if he's going, you know, he's going uh, run blocking left. As soon as Perry would, um, sorry about that noise. As soon as Perry would put his right foot down to stop, and, you know, he's trying to get the tackle, right? That's why he's stopping. Or he's trying to maintain his gap. Well, Dwight Stevens would tip him right over that right leg. And he would, it would just, you know, bodies on the ground. And it wasn't because he was overpowering him. And I'm quite sure he was strong. But at the end of the day, he was giving up 50 pounds plus to, to Perry, you know. It was because he used Perry's strengths against him. I'm quite sure that Perry stopped many centers in the 80s and maintained his gap. It just didn't work for Dwight Stevenson. So that was his style. But then you take a look at Olin Cruz. And and another unique thing about Dwight Stevenson is when he got his hands on people, he would snap his hips into position. So he would get his hands on people real fast. And let's say it was a shade right. He had this super wide base. And he would take a set. It wasn't a stance conducive to, like, really creating a ton of space because, I mean, it's wide. Look at the pictures on uh, Google Images. But he would get his hands on him and he would just snap his hips into place. And then from there, he would use his, the defender's strengths against him. That was unique. And, I, you know, and I think back, Kevin White did the same thing. So th- that would have been a center that uh, I think Kevin White came in in 94. That would have been a center that he was watching. You know what I mean? And watching problem solve, watching, you know, have success. I don't think it's crazy. If I ever see Kevin again, I'm going to ask him, did you watch Dwight? I, I think he got a, at least a portion of his game from Dwight. Anyways, so now going to Olin style, he played with a very narrow base, right? He played, uh, he played very violent. He didn't snap his hips into position. He forced his hips into position. You know, he was fighting pressure with pressure. 
Now, he had answers, you know, to take away what they were giving him. But for the most part, he was fighting pressure. You know, he took a pass that I talked about it at O-Line Masterminds uh, last episode. Once he got his right hand on someone in pass pro, it was his right hip that won the block. He, had, he thought he had to keep his hip really strong. Dwight would have dropped his hip and just dumped him. Now, how would that work versus overload fronts today uh, and all these games? It, 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 you know, it might have been tricky, but that's not what was going on when Dwight was playing. I watched that game. There was almost no twisting, right? Maybe slants, but there was no none of these elaborate games, you know, like none of these Marinelli-type games. So I think if Dwight was presented with these games, he would have just adapted and it would have been fine. But so Olin would keep that strong hip. And when Olin played, games got better, you know. And I think, well, he played on a team where they had Rob Marinelli. And I think he's done a good job of getting guys doing games. So, you know, maybe that accounts for why Olin played with such a strong hip. And in the run game, Olin would force his hips on that angle. Now, on the pancake, they had a similar style. So Olin would force his hips on these angles. That defender put it, but... Instead of waiting for the defender to put his hip down, Olin put hit the guy so hard that they had to put their foot down. And when they put their foot down, he would do the same thing that um, Dwight Stevenson did. He would either tip them or change the angle and go vertical on them. So one was allowing the defender to do what they wanted and then using that against them. And the other, Olin was forcing the defender to, to have to put his foot down because it would hit him so hard. He would force his hips on that angle so hard. He wasn't snapping his hips into position. He would hit them so hard, they would put their foot down, and uh, then he'd tip them. So they got the same result with a different style of getting there. And those were two fun centers to watch. If you could find film of them, watch it. Um, maybe I could post this uh, 85 Bears on YouTube. So the way I got it was uh, in Chicago – Dave Hendrickson was our film guy, awesome guy, and I pro he probably hates me because I was oh I want to film with everyone Mike Webster Dwight Stevenson Dermonte Dawson Larry Allen LeCharles Bentley they had all the Olin films obviously there uh, Hildenberg uh, the center uh, that made a lot of Pro Bowls prior to Olin uh, I would just ask him for random stuff he was always calling other teams but he was pulling things out on reels. And then having to convert them to, like, I think he had to convert them to VHS and the DVD and then eventually put them on my iPad. So he helped me out a lot. So I got a lot of cool film. Some things I watched like movies. Some things I studied and, and took from or at least attempted. You know, I'd see a skill that someone used, and I'd try to make it mine. And um, as Ross had told me the other day, that skill becomes the player. So, like, I did use... Kevin Mawai and Casey Wigman's snap down uh, on toss plays and stuff. I would just kind of jump in hockey jersey, uh, nose guards and stuff, and I got good at that kind of stuff. Um, There's not a lot of – it doesn't really fit a lot of systems, though. But, you know, I, that's what I was always doing, and Dave always kind of gave me that opportunity because he would give me so much freaking film. You know, but it was good. I was always kind of creating data in my head. You know, if I had an injury, I, I kind of would have an answer for things. When you watch a guy like uh, Casey Wigman, he gives you a lot of answers. Say you're hurt. You know what I mean? You don't want to take a bull rush. Uh, there, 
even Dwight Stevenson, right? You don't want to sit on that bull rush. You don't want to fight pressure to pressure. You watch those guys. It, kind of, it gives you an answer, right? Now, all these answers also come with their own vulnerabilities, so you got to be aware of that. you got to play the system that you're in, you know what I mean? And you can't just be straight chaos. You can't be your own player when you have to be a part of 11-person system or at least, you know, looking at the betterment of the O-line and the running backs' decisions that they have to make. But at the end of the day, you know, I did learn a lot of skills thanks to Dave going through, you know, decades of film for me. I'll try to put that Dwight Stevenson on YouTube. That would be pretty cool for people to see. Um, yeah, so going down this whole style thing, um, I in the past I've always been – things. That, my ideas of, like, adapting to defenders and their moves and stuff has changed. Um, I, uh, I think even especially today, if you watch the way these defenders move, um, and you know how they're attacking offensive line and the moves they have, they have the, you know a lot of martial arts wrestling esque type moves. You got to have an answer for that, you know, and I, I believe you really got to practice against these things. Just an example, Mitch Schwartz said he did that Hamilton move versus the long arm. He would have the practice squad guys he's going against give him uh, the long arm, you know, in practice so he could work that Hamilton, and it became second nature. So he had an answer for Khalil Mack. And then he said that Joe Thomas would get the long arm from Jason Taylor. And his solution was different than Mitch Schwartz, and he told me this on the side. He would punch, uh, instead of lifting the arm off him, he would punch Jason Taylor's hand as it was about to long arm, he would just punch him right in the hand and it would screw the whole thing up. So Joe Thomas would have the defenders give it to him and, you know, the practice squad guys or scout team guys give him that look and he would just punch their hand all week. So when he played Jason Taylor, sure enough, I went and looked. He plays Jason Taylor, he's punching his freaking hand on the long arm, which that's just impressive. I don't think Mitch felt as comfortable doing that, so he came up with Hamilton. So, um... I don't think it's as simple as it used to be with, you know, I think you got to do what you're good at, but you got to have, you know, be ready to adapt to some of these crazy rushes in the NFL. So one of the rushes that has just been, I've been fixated on for the last couple of years, especially these last two, is the Washington football team's rush. They have a, a cross chop and a hump, but it's not a hump that you see. You know, like, I think of like Stephen Paya. For some reason, and don't cancel me, a lot of the Polynesian uh, defensive linemen, and this is even in college, I play with Mikey Potty's younger brother, Andrew Potty. They always have good hump moves, especially that nose guard. But um, what Washington football team is not doing a traditional hump. You could watch a ton of film on them, especially Allen over there, is they cross chop and they get an underhook. And if you know anything about wrestling, you know what I'm talking about with an underhook. They're underhooking, uh, I guess, they're coming basically under uh, underhooking your arm instead of trying to hump where, you know, in the past you see defenders throw this cross chop and they're humping. They're trying to hump the offensive line athlete by. But with Washington football team, they're trying to just get connected on this underhook and they're just trying to collapse the pocket. And they do, man, because they get inside the offensive lineman and they got no answer for it. So... Last year, I was scouting for um, a, a rookie going against them. 
And I watched a bunch of film, and I was like, man, they're just killing everybody with this cross-chop underhook. So I hit up Larry Warford, and he was like, yeah. He's like, I think they're teaching. They t- they're taught to do it. Da-da-da. He's like, I played them in 17. They kept getting me with it. It pissed them, pissed them off. Well, Larry developed a, an answer for it. He's a problem solver. Like, the guy Larry was playing chess. He was always, he was always changing his set. You know, and he, he saw it as a weakness, and I just saw it as, you know, he's like, always changing my technique. He was like, these guys always keep the same technique. I think that's what made Larry unique. I wouldn't tell him to change. His stance was always changing. His set, his depth was changing. His stagger was changing. You know, one year he completely jump set. One year he only uses inside hand. One year he uh, was outside hand. One year he was two hands. Like, predominantly, he would, you know, he would adapt to the player that he was going against. But, so he's going against the Washington football team. And his answer was to set them head up, like, which is, that's an overset, right? Oh, my gosh, you can never set a defender head up. You're oversetting there. They're going to beat you inside. Well, his answer was he would set inside, and he would strike him with his outside hand. And when he struck with his outside hand, they would go for the chop. But because he was so overset, really just dick to dick. I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm not getting canceled for genitalia. They were nose to nose, just head up. He, he would set them head up, and because of that, they couldn't underhook him, which it almost seems counterintuitive, but I'm breaking down all these films, and I'm seeing guys that have success versus cross-chop underhook. It's because they set them head up. Um, if you're Even if you're looking at a hump move, the hump move works because you're half man, you're knee to crotch, you're underset, because it allows the defender to either push you by or simultaneously hump you by while they're pulling themselves. So they're using that hump move to push the offensive lineman and also pull themselves into a position so they could, you know, uh, go get that in sack. They're trying to push you into the B gap so they could get in the A gap, push you into the B gap and pull themselves into the A gap. If that makes sense. So it's a push pull simultaneous. That's what the hump is. Well, they can't do that if you're head up, right? Because they'd have to be pushing across their body. They're not strong. So when I asked Larry, I was like, hey, so he, okay, just to put this all together, he would strike outside hand, they'd cross chop it, they'd try to get the underhook, there was nothing there, he would just take them where they wanted to go, he would take them inside, and he would bury them, and it was like every freaking time, lights out, he probably had like 12, 12 one-on-ones just like that, take them right inside where they wanted to go, you'd think the vulnerability would be uh, TT's, he passed one off in the game. He said it was a different rush. He knew it. He adapted to it. Okay? Not everyone's freaking Larry Warford. So, anyways, last year I gave a rookie that rut, told him to set them head up. He did it. It worked well for him. I've seen a lot of guys getting crushed by that all year. And this rookie did well versus him. Um, this year I've still been thinking about it because, uh, I, you know, I keep watching – uh, games from last year with that move from the Washington football team. Could, that That is such a stupid name. I get the Redskin offensive move, being offensive. I get it. But come on. Anyways, so I keep watching this thing. And uh, so the other day, I'm working with a bunch of guys getting ready for training camp right now. And one of the guys is in that division, the NFC East. And we're talking about it. And, you know, showing him how Larry solved that problem. And then, 
we talked to a uh, a wrestling coach, an MMA coach. Coach C, he's nothing, you know, he, it's kind of weird. He played college football, has no clue about football anymore. He doesn't do football, just fighting. And um, we asked him how he sees it, you know, or I asked him how he saw it and what he would do. And uh, he gave an answer. One of the guys I was training with, he is a, he was an all-state wrestler, and he was able to take those cues immediately from a wrestling standpoint. So, you know, basically, if the underhook lands, this is like a worst-case scenario. That underhook lands, he's like immediately you have to clamp down, you drop your center, you, you drop your uh, bait, or um, you just go, oh, excuse me, sorry, hit the mic. You drop your body down, you get lower, and then you tip him inside just like Larry. So, like, Larry's, at the end of the day, was a plan A. And then uh, if you got caught, that was the plan B. You know what I mean? How to finish that thing. And uh, that was really cool, you know, just to see how he problem solved it. So, we've just been going back and forth. I actually sent it to, um, I sent the play to Dwayne or Duke. And uh, he was working with one of the all pros in that division on those two pieces right larry's answer to the problem larry's uh decision making and adaptation to that problem and then the plan b the wrestler's approach because if we're looking at this this is a wrestling move and i remember one of the guys i worked with before he, he coached the line and he kept saying he's doing it wrong he's doing it wrong he's, this is not the hump and i'm like yeah, he's not doing anything wrong he's collapsing the pocket he's getting pressure he's tearing up all pro guards. I'm like, that doesn't seem wrong to me. Uh, but if you, when you break that down, like the fact that a guy that coached the line for that long, it didn't, he was like, he's doing it wrong. It's because it's not necessarily a traditional D-line move. It's a, it's a hybrid. It was a wrestling slash D-line move. So we've gone over these, uh, you know, these ways of solving it. But then, it started getting me to think of Justin Smith. And that guy was a monster for the 49ers. And I was like, man, he used to cross chop and hump. He used to cross chop. And I was like, maybe he got that underhook. You know what I mean? And he would use it on games, too. He would, his, his uh, you know, him and Alden Smith are on the, they're lined up with a left guard and left tackle. And you just slid to them. You cannot find a play in, in sub where the center slides right versus the 49ers in 2011, 2012, 2013. They went left. I think 13 with Alden Smith was still there. They always went left. You had to. You had to account for them. So his pass rush looked the same as his uh, as their TE because he would do the cross chop and he would throw the underhook. Well, if it was a game, he threw that underhook, he was holding the guard so Alden Smith go and if he didn't if it wasn't a game he threw the cross chop went for the underhook and he would either collapse the pocket like the Washington football team and I couldn't freaking remember seeing this I just didn't remember or, or maybe I just wasn't in tune or maybe I was just praying I didn't have to play guard versus the 49ers and I'd only always be a center but he would do both he would do the traditional hump move that I said that the Paulies do do not cancel me that's a compliment to the Polynesian culture. That's not I'm not being racist. Or he would collapse them like the Washington football team. So now this is the way my brain works. I go, oh, furthermore, they play. For, they had the same D line coach, 
Washington football team and Justin Smith for a lot of years. They had the same D-line coach. So that kind of tells you where that goes from, the whole uh, that move comes from. But then I'm like, okay, who's having success versus these guys? With Justin Smith, like when guys would um, guys would set him head up, and then normally they would do that because they got the slide, he would throw this ridiculous rip move, just super exaggerated. And I think, and I think it was to, this is, I don't know. I hope I get to meet Justin Smith and ask him. I think he would do that to get them to stop setting so far. You know what I mean? Stop setting them head up. I think Justin Smith knew that if you set him head up, that the hump or the underhook was not as effective, right? So he would throw this ridiculous rip, and then eventually, um, let's say he let's let's say they came out on cub and a, uh, a you know a fight like a bear bear look and sub, and he got the he got no slide. That center or that guard would hopefully not overset as much because they were worried about that. He would just throw this obnoxious rip. And uh, I just think, like, it, it, to me, he was setting it up to get them to stop setting so far. Then I remembered Paul Alexander. He coached the Bengals for years. Now I think he does a Patreon thing. I worked out for him at my pro day. He taught his guards to set head up. And so I put on the Bengals versus Justin Smith. They set him head up, and Justin Smith really didn't get any stats that game, except, like, on runs. But he wasn't getting any pressures. I was like, holy crap. So, you know, even going back a decade now, we're seeing that these cross chops and humps are less effective when you set the guy, uh, not dick to dick, nose to nose. Um, and that's interesting. So how do I know Paul Alexander teaches his guards to set head up? Okay, I went to Pro Day at Fresno State, the stupid college I attended, Humble State, that doesn't have football anymore. They, they, uh, they said they could do a Pro Day. There was only three teams that could make it. I'm not a big deal, right? I think if Alex Kappa got was doing it, I think 15 teams would have showed up. It's not an easy place to get to. Maybe 32. I'll say that. Screw that. 32 teams would have showed up for Alex Kappa. Maybe three for me. Anyways, I went to Fresno State's Pro Day. Paul Alexander's there. And he goes, uh, he asked me, what relation do you set a defender as a center or guard? And I go, what do you mean relation? He goes, you set them inside out or you set them head up? I said, set them inside out. And he goes, Wrong, just obnoxiously. I'm not saying the guy was likable. I don't have an opinion on him either. Uh, I'm just saying that he had an answer for this freaking uh, <laughs> this hump move. So if I could go back now, so that's how I knew. He said, you know, he obnoxious was like, wrong. You know, you don't set him inside out. He goes, that's for tackles. He goes, this is for the interior, sets him head up. And he then he asked the tackle, he goes, what happens if the defender's really wide? And he goes, he said something, I think he said vertical. He goes, wrong, sounds like you failed geometry. I don't know why he was bringing math that I get the freaking angles thing, but I'm sure he looked like a guy that was great at math, and he was just a coach in the NFL, not a player. I'm not trying to diss him. I don't know him. Uh, if I met him again, I'd like to ask him why. 
You know what I mean? I think in the past I've criticized him and like set head up, but I gotta be honest. There's a couple moves and and, and a couple type of defenders that I'm like, yeah, you set head up. Uh, Akeem Hicks being one of them. I'm not setting him knee to crotch or inside out. You gotta cover that monster up. Take him where he wants to go. And see, he's a monster. Then, uh, ah, man, that that kind of makes me think of this whole campy thing. Uh, when you look at when you look at if you're trying to live in this O line world or any athletic development, if you're trying to live through the lens of like doing this camp thing, and I've criticized this on other episodes, I believe you're you're just stopping your you're impeding progress. You're not going to be able to grow. So, like if Paul Alexander, I want to know why he has this guy set head up on the interior because there's something to say. There are defenders. There are moves that it's effective against. I think it comes with some vulnerabilities. Passing off uh, interior games for one. If you're going against more athletic guys, you're going to get smoked. You know what I mean? Head up. The perception of head up versus really being head up, it's it's hard to tell. You know, you got a smaller body. you got a D-end at three-tech. You know what I mean? You're probably going to overset and get smoked. And I mean overset going even past head up. But I'd like to ask him. Uh, I'd like to ask him that. I think that, oh, man. I just get annoyed at how how campy there is because there's so much you can learn. Uh, I think when you get in this world, and, and and there's a few camps. You know, you have in the NFL, you got the Cool Clinic, you got the Callahan guys, you got the McNally guys, you got the Paul Alexander guys, you got the Howard Mudd guys. You know what I mean? All good coaches, like all coaches have had success. And then in the private sector, you're seeing a lot of these uh, these camps, right? And that it gets dangerous, right? Um, you think about it. You you start. It's how you make sense of the world. It's how you make sense of the position. It, it this if you look at it from a psychological standpoint, the the slope you're going down is dangerous in that you're like, okay, this guy, he's teaching it wrong, and I'm right. So then you know what I mean. I'm inherently right, and he's inherently wrong, and you find ways of backing that up, and you don't look at the nuance, right? There's, like, I probably in the past and like, no, Paul Alexander's out of his mind. And today I'm saying something different, right? I don't know. I'm not saying I don't like him. I'm not saying I like him. I don't know the guy. I'm not saying he's likable, you know what I mean? He's, he was obnoxious to me when I was 22. But, you know, I'm not canceling the guy. So, but that's where you go. So that's how it starts is I'm right and they're wrong. But then it goes further. And it, if you just look at society, it just gets worse. It goes to, I'm right, they're wrong, to I'm good. I'm on the virtuous side. I'm really trying to help players. They're evil. They're trying to hurt players. They're trying to end players' careers. That's where you go next. I'm not, I'm not crazy for thinking that. Just look at even politics or look at uh, institutions. It's us versus them. It's good versus evil. And it, once you start thinking like that and you lose the self-awareness, you lose the empathy, it's dangerous because then it's hey, I am uh, I'm good and they're evil. It's us first them. Everything they said is wrong, and I mean you're you're leaving out the nuance. You're leaving out the self awareness. You really have to think about that you're fully capable of being wrong. You're fully capable of being evil, right? It's like Solzhenitsyn. Uh, yeah, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said he wrote Gulag Archipelago. In that book, he said evil. I think he said something along the lines, life's not about good and evil. 
Evil is something that can cut through the heart of every human being. So meaning, you're capable of being uh, evil. And I'm going to start rambling, my bad. I'm already rambling. But when you look at, if you look at Carl Jung, a uh, psychoanalyst, he was studied under Freud and later broke up, break, broke off from Freud. A couple uh, principal uh, differences, right? But he would talk about your shadow, knowing your shadow. It's knowing your propensity to what, what your shadow can do. It can do evil, right? Uh, how would I break that down? Like, like the movie Joker. That's your shadow. And interestingly enough, you know what I mean? We, when they presented it that way, people empathized with the Joker. Oh, my gosh. The woman of Joaquin Phoenix, right? That's what I'm talking about. Like, the guy gets bullied. He gets treated like shit. And all of a sudden, you're able to empathize with him. Well, that's your shadow. So, Carl Jung would suggest you do shadow work to know your, know your evil side. Know what you're capable of doing. Then you're able to empathize. Then it's not us versus them. Because it's not you're right and I'm, or I'm right and you're wrong. I'm good and you're evil, right? I think that's very key. Not just in athletics, but in life. But if you're going to be a professional, and these camps are going to exist, right? There's going to be Callahan guys. There's going to be tip of the spear guys. There's going to be OLP guys. There's going to be Jim McNally guys. There's going to be Paul Alexander guys. There's going to be Duke guys, right? There, uh, those camps are going to exist, and that's fine. You know what I mean? It's just like the coaching tree. It's who you come up under. It's great. But do some shadow work, for God's sakes. Not everyone is evil. Not everyone is bad. Not everyone's wrong. You can learn from everyone. Go into freaking, uh, go into conversations thinking like this person has something to teach me, and it's okay to say I'm confident enough to know I could teach them something too. But we keep going down these things like this guy's dumb. That's where we get to. It's like, oh, this guy's evil. He's trying to ruin careers, and here I am, the virtuous one saving them. Uh, thank God for me, right? So, look into that. Know your shadow. And, and hold on. I would not call anybody out without holding myself accountable. I have freaking done this, right? Um, I can't remember how many years ago. A couple years ago, it was not my current Twitter account, so I can't look it up. It was an account I deleted. We went in on a guy. He had a picture. I still think it was stupid, right? He had a picture of a gorilla's back. I think he had a picture of a banana on there so it's like the shape of a gorilla's back and a banana the way that their spine is work is super arched right like not rounded I'm talking about arched you know what i mean like extended uh lordosis and i think it was the st louis bridge they had that big arch and i i don't know what the hell it said but it was saying this is how a lineman's back should look in order to be powerful in order to be a good lineman this is the shape of the freaking back. Now, I first off, we're not gorillas, right? I would and I, and I oh shoot, sorry, I hit the mic. First off, we're not gorillas. We have a different shaped spine. I'm not gonna get into the science stuff, right? I know where that freaking thing came from. When I was with the Jets, Jim McNally was a consultant. He was basically the assistant line coach. He would always talk about freaking gorilla backs, right? I don't know where he came up with this thing. Maybe he was at the zoo, and a gorilla got some good freaking leverage on a freaking banana tree and pulled this thing out, and he was like, hmm, that's what my lineman's got to do. That's what I need Anthony Munoz to do. I don't know how he got there. But he was big on gorilla backs. So people in that McNally-type camp, again, talking camps, 
have adopted that into their teaching. This is where the shadow work comes in. This is where good versus evil, right versus wrong. Now, if you start out right versus wrong, that's it, that doesn't have to go where our, my uh, attack on this coach went. I don't even know the coach's name because I don't have that Twitter. I can't even freaking look it up. Start out just right versus wrong. Hey, maybe I can learn something. Or, or not right versus wrong. We just go into the situation and say, maybe I can learn something. What is he trying to do? And then I can teach him something. Hey, man, if you arch your back like that, this is what we see with our high school alignment. They get a lot of pars fractures. It's called Scotty Dog Fracture. I know that because I looked it up in Stuart McGill book when I saw this freaking banana back post. We could have talked it out, perhaps learned something from him. But no, when you go good versus evil, this guy's evil. So I think the guy was a, 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 a Caucasian gentleman, and he coached at an HBCU. That's uh, a historic black college. Don't call it an all-black college because my friends always call me out about that. It's an HBCU. Do not, don't, don't try to offend it's not, it's not the approach these days. So, coach at an HBCU. And if you're looking at this through an evil standpoint, you're judging the intention. You're judging his intent. We're not psychic. That's the point of the shadow. Because you empathize, right? But if you judge someone's intent, thinking you know everything, thinking you're good and they're inherently evil, you're judging their intent from that standpoint, right? If you know you're a shadow, you're going to try to understand their intent. But when you don't know your shadow, you don't know that you're capable of being the bad guy. You don't know you're capable of being Joker. Then you're going to judge their intent. Judge. That's different than understand. So you come up with this thing. Oh, you know what? This white guy is at this HBCU trying to break black athletes' lumbars, right? Let's get this mother sucker. Let's get this evil dude. That's what happens when you judge their intent. Instead of trying to understand his intent, I don't know. Let's say this. He's at an HBCU. He wants to see his guys be successful. And the trade-off is if they have success, he has success. He's building a brand. He markets a bunch of McNally type, type stuff. Maybe McNally endorses him on Twitter. I don't know. But maybe that was his intent. But we look at it as like, oh, he's a, this guy's trying to break these uh, black student athletes' lumbars. That's the point of not knowing your shadow. For all I know is that these players on his team would have ran through a wall through for this cracker. Maybe they love them. And don't cancel me for saying cracker. That's my freaking word. I love that word. Um, and that's the point. Don't judge people's intent. I guess that's what I'll wrap this mother sucker up at. Know your shadow. Know that life is not good versus evil. I know politics will have you thinking that. You know what I mean? When, you're, when you get to the point of not knowing your shadow, having no self-awareness, and you think you are just inherently the good, you are angelic, you are virtuous. And, and the person that would dare question you is evil. You're going to judge their intent. Because you've got to have a bad guy. You have to have a bad guy for your existence. If you're going to live life, go, if you're going to go through life being like, I'm good, anyone against me is evil, or I'm the victim, you're going to have to create bad guys. You have to. Paranoid people always create bad guys. They need them. It's like that movie... Um, with Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson, you got to create the bad guy. What you need to understand is your biggest enemy, the biggest bad guy is you. If not, but who is your ability to be the bad guy? You're going to be your own worst enemy. So that's how I would say this. Get to know your shadow. And if if you you know are in this camp, know that someone can teach you something. 
And know not everyone is inherently bad. You are not inherently good. We're all capable of being evil. We're all capable of being good. We're all capable of being right. We're all capable of being wrong. Understand their intent. Don't freaking judge it. You don't need a bad guy all the time. That's not how you make it through life. We got all these other opponents. If you're in this O-line world, right now, the bad guy we're trying to beat is these freaking defensive coordinators, these defensive linemen, these monsters over here. Freaking Aaron Donald's 250, and he's throwing O-linemen around like it's going out of style. That's what we need to focus on, not this camp bullshit. Know your shadow, right? Judge, understand someone's intent before you just judge their intent. You could be evil, you could be right, you could be wrong, you could be good. All these things. Let's stop these freaking bull rushes. Let's stop these long arm or cross chop underhooks, right? Let's solve some problems. Episode 5. Like my episode. Give me 5 stars. Subscribe to it on YouTube. Leave a comment and leave more than 4 words, right? Don't just emoji me. I appreciate it, man. I'll catch you next week.